Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Our passage today comes from John 9, 1 to 16, 24 and 25. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was, bl- he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Well, welcome everyone to Hope Brooklyn. How you guys doing? Yeah. All right. Halfway through October. It's a beautiful day outside. Uh, I am moved into a new apartment. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm now. Thank you. Thank you. The proud renter of a place on 12th and 7th. So come visit us. Uh, my name is Russ. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here. We're so honored you're with us at Hope Brooklyn. Uh, we say at Hope Brooklyn, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. That's what our prayer, uh, that's what Justin just prayed. We know that people are coming from all walks of life, um, coming from all places on the spiritual spectrum. Shoot, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we, we, every morning we find ourselves in a different place. And wherever you found yourself this morning, you're now here, and you're welcome here, just as you are. Uh, we're going to sing together, 
we're going to cry out hallelujah, which is a really fascinating word that people don't even know what it means anymore. It's such an old, old word, and yet there's something about it that just comes from the gut of you, and it catches you to say hallelujah to God. Hallelujah. It'll be the final word on the last day. Um, we're going we're gonna to turn to the text. We're going to have a message, and then we're going to share some breakfast burritos, y'all. Who's excited about breakfast burritos? Awesome. Uh, a couple brief announcements. Uh, this is the time of the service where we practice generosity. Uh, the way we like to talk about it here is um, God doesn't want your money. God just doesn't want your money to get you. Uh, money can have a, a hold on us. And so one way that we participate in what God is doing is to release a portion of that through his local church uh, so that we can continue the ministries practically, but also that you can see the hand of God be your provider in your life. And so there are a couple different ways you can give. The whole family makes it happen. They're on the screen behind me. Thank you so much for your financial participation. Uh, we literally could not do this without all of us joining together in it. Uh, if it's your first time here, obviously if you want to give, we're not going to say no. We're not going to reject your cash, but um, please don't feel like that's for you. Rather, what I'd love to uh, turn your attention to is a connection card. You received that on the way in. There's tons of information on this. Name, email, uh, if you're interested in getting connected in a small group, we call them tables that share meals throughout the week. Um, any questions you may have about the community, fill that out, take a look at it, fill it out. And then at the end of service, on the way out, we will have welcome team members with their smiling faces and baskets. You just put that connection card uh, there in the basket. Someone from our team will get in touch with you, help us help you. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so please make that available. At this time, kids, you are dismissed. Go, little ones. Uh, we have a couple environments for our kids. We have Hope Tots, which is our three to four. Uh, we have our Tiny Tots, our two-year-olds. We have Hope Kids, which is five to fifth grade. And then uh, parents, if you have little, little infants um, and they're getting fussy, you just need a space to, to rock them or to change them. There is a nursery. Straight out those doors to the left, you'll see a sign that says nursery. If you go into the gym, um, the first or second door to the left. We got some rocking chairs, got some toys, some wipes, um, and you, we've patched in the sermon, so you can still hear the sermon there. So please make that available to you. All right. So we have been in this series that we have titled Groundswell. Groundswell. We've been examining John's gospel, as you heard read, and the basic question we're asking is, what would it look like to allow God's presence to swell your life? What would it look like to allow the living reality of the Creator to enter and invade your very being, to capture your hearts, and to take you up into an utterly new way of living? One other little important note before we jump in. Uh, prayer has been a very important part of this series. Uh, we have a prayer room right outside those doors to the right. There are people there. So at any point in the service, if there's something that you just need to go pray about and have received prayer for, make that available. Our passage today, we notice we've come to almost halfway in John's gospel. And it's a really important story that is getting at a theme that is very essential to God's work in the world. Uh, it's getting at a theme, it's sort of harking around this theme um, that is essential to what he's bringing to pass in and through Jesus, and therefore by extension, in and through us. <laughs> Today's story 
is all about power. That was pretty traumatic, wasn't it, as I said that and took a sip? All about power. Uh, we, like I said, we moved into a new place. It's on the fourth story, fourth floor walk-up, and uh, have rooftop access. And so I was on the roof uh, earlier this week thinking about this sermon, thinking about the theme of power, and it has a really nice view overlooking downtown Manhattan. And of course, that's a, that's a really provocative image, isn't it? Overlooking downtown Manhattan, thinking about power. <laughs> power, what is it? What is power? Well, in the physics, the classic physics definition, it is the rate of converting energy per unit per time. So basically, it's work that creates heat that provides impact to alter physical realities. That is power. That is the transference of power. On a social level, uh, the, the classic adage is that power is influence. Power is the ability to influence realities. Which think about it, it's basically the same thing as the physics. It's the ability to convert work into trust and impact that changes a social dynamic. As I looked over in, into downtown Manhattan, I noticed that there is all sorts of power there, all types of power. One World Trade being a prime example. There are tons of companies housed within that building that have tons of economic and societal power. The building itself, One World Trade, is symbolic power for what it represents being built in the site where the first two towers went down. Tons of geopolitical power for what it represents in the world. In downtown Manhattan, just in, in general, that is insane amounts of geographic power when you think about all the money, all the businesses, all the people who were right there. Power is everywhere. It's wrapped up in economies. It's wrapped up in capital that creates influence. Power is everywhere. It's energy creating change. But it's not just in structures. It's not just in cities. It's, it's not just in buildings. As uh, the philosopher Michel Foucault said, power is diffused and embodied in discourse, knowledge, and regimes of truth. Discourse, knowledge, and regimes of truth. For Foucault, you don't possess power. Rather, we are portals that power possesses and passes through. Whether we realize it or not, there's power in our conversations, in our discourse, and what conversations are allowed and which ones are not. There's power in our knowledge, which again, knowledge is determined by which conversations are allowed and which are not. What we're allowed to know and what we're not allowed to ask questions about, there's power there. There's power in, in these regimes of truth, these dominant ideas of what is true and what is moral and what is good that a society agrees upon somehow in some way. And so as I'm looking out over One World Trade in downtown Manhattan, I'm considering all of this and recognizing also that this is not unique to us. This is the story of existence. This is the story of humanity. Power has always been concentrated in the hands of the rich, in those in high positions, those owning property, those possessing agency in their lives and the lives of others. 
That's where the power seems most concentrated. It's the golden rule. Those who have the gold make the rules. My dad loved to quote that one to me and my brothers. I did not appreciate it about the age of 14. Right? It's, it's history being told by the victors. And honestly, when we consider all this, when we consider these realities, these dynamics about power, this is also why it is really, really hard for you to understand and experience the power of God. Because you and I, we live in a powerful country. We live in a powerful society. You and I, we are possessed by large swaths of power. To which we'll see in time, when we're, when we're possessed by other forms of power, we can't be possessed by God's form of power. The two don't work together that way. That's why it's really hard. I'm reminded of a, a really great book called The Kingdom by a French writer, Emmanuel Carrere. And in it, he really examines, um, he examines Christianity um, and, and his own experience with the faith. And he writes toward the end, um, just almost like this, this line that it seems like a throwaway line, but it's so profound and powerful. He says, I am a writer. I am rich. I am an intellectual. I am a man at the top. All things that encumber me from seeing the kingdom. It's true. When we are possessed by other forms of power, we can't truly experience what God is doing. And whether you know Jesus or not in this room, and let's be real, many of us, including myself, I know him, but I cannot walk in his power sometimes. Whether you know him or not, where your life is devoid of his power, the power he promises in the gospels, the abundant life that he says is ours, where it's devoid, it's because other sources of power are taking up that space. And that's always been the case. The question then in this story is how is Jesus dealing with it? What is his method? What's he trying to teach you today for your life? There is a mad search in this story for where Jesus gets his power. Where does it come from? The episode opens. Jesus is walking by. There's a man born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What are they asking in that? They're seeking the source of power found in knowledge of how things work. Who sinned? Was it him or was his parents? Because if we can locate what went wrong, we can locate the source of the power, then we can make sure that it doesn't happen anymore. We possess the power. It's in the knowledge. And, and remember, if you were here last week, we talked about John chapter 5, where Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And do you remember what he said after he healed him at the very end? He goes, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What he's trying to do is connect that our lives, our, our, the way we live, the way we think, uh, the way we treat each other, our lives affect, our, our spiritual lives affect our physical bodies, our physical realities. What is at the center of your heart? What you most want influences, that is to say, empowers or disempowers your life. And we, we are experts in self-delusion. But if we really get honest, you know what's at the center of your heart. You know what you most want. If you don't censor yourself, what do you most want? You want love? You want fame? 
You want acceptance? You want stuff? What is it? What do you most want? Acknowledgement? That's at the center, and that is giving power or disempowering your life. And the disciples were listening. They were listening. They're like, oh, okay. So if this guy sinned, and that's why his, his condition was the way it was, then, then the man born blind, who sinned? Was it, was it him or was it his parents? Because he was born blind. What happened? Where is the power? And Jesus was like, no, no, that's not it. Uh, thank you for listening, because the disciples often don't listen. Um, good job, but you're wrong. <laughs> it's not that simple. Neither he nor his parents sinned. Rather, he was born blind so that the works of God could be revealed in him. He was born blind so that the works of God could be revealed in him, so that God may reveal God's power in him. The source of power is not in our decisions, at least not exclusively, nor in our parents' decisions, Though, if we, I want to confuse it a little bit further, it's also not, not in those places, according to chapter 5, because our sin can preclude us from experiencing and walking in the power of the kingdom, but it's not that simple. Every weakness that we see is not necessarily a sign of our decisions. It actually might be a lot bigger. It actually might be that God is trying to teach us something about the kingdom through it. He's trying to work his power in this. So it's not, I mean, his disciples are listening, but that's not the case. Neither he sinned nor his parents sinned. Okay, well, what, what, where is it? What happened? Notice after the man is healed, he goes to his neighbors and they don't recognize him. Did you catch that? They're divided about who he is. They say, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some are saying, it's him. And others were saying, no, it's only someone like him. The power that has worked in his life is to such a degree that people don't even recognize him anymore. He shows back home to his fourth floor walk up and he passes his neighbors and they're like, hey, you don't live here. He's like, no, yeah, I do. They don't even recognize him. If you've ever seen a child gain confidence, you, you know a bit of what this is like, right? You see a child suddenly gain confidence and you're like, who are you, Right? They seem different. I remember when I, when I uh, spent my first summer in Portland, and I'm from North Carolina, and that's where I met Anna, my wife, and, and I came home, and my mom was like, who are you, Russell? And I'm like, I have a girlfriend. I had confidence. I also had a new wardrobe, <laughs> um, which Anna's sisters love to point out uh, about the differences between North Carolina dress and Pacific Northwest dress. But... Um, you've seen that, right? There was a, a new form of power in him that the people didn't even recognize him. If you've ever seen power go to someone's head, you know the exact same situation. We go, who are you? I don't recognize you anymore. And then they question. And he's like, he tells them, I'm the same guy. It's me. I'm the same guy. And he tells them that Jesus healed him. He goes, okay. <laughs> the neighbor's like, all right, where is he? Where is this Jesus? And the guy says, I don't know. They're, they accept what he says. Okay, power is in Jesus alone. It's geographically located. It's not in knowledge, like the disciples said or asked. It's in, it's in Jesus, in this geographical body. Where is he? We don't know. 
We don't know where to find him anymore. He comes and goes as he wishes. You can't control him. You can't just put 25 cents into his jar, say a prayer, you know, do a little thing, and then he gives you the next dispensation of power. (laughs) That's not the way it works, apparently. So they take him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the social elite in his society. And he tells them the same story. That Jesus, he, he spit on the ground, he made mud, he rubbed it over my eyes, I washed it off, and then I could see. And their response is, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. <laughs> what are they saying? Where's the power? Power is in social customs. Power's in the status quo. And of course they would say that. They're the powerful. The powerful never want the status quo to be upset. They like things just the way it is. No, this man's not from God. No, no, it can't be. He doesn't observe the Sabbath. It's in laws. It's in orders. As Foucault says, it's in regimes of truth. Reminds me of Dr. King's quote about the white moderates who are constantly saying, wait, wait, wait. And he realized wait just meant never. Because it's never going to want to change something. Because when the power of God enters into something, it dismantles it. It dismantles. And the powerful don't want the system dismantled. Of course they don't. God is saying that his kingdom is the deepest truth of the world and of your existence. He himself is the deepest reality of your very existence. His kingdom brings life to your weary soul and to our weary city. But how its power comes is crucial to understanding what it's doing and where we're going. And see, here's the thing. You notice in in all of these cases um, with the neighbors, they ask, where is he? They want to go find the power and take it. With the Pharisees, they say, oh, this man's not from God because it was on the Sabbath. They want to make Jesus honor their own social customs, right? So in all these cases, the disciples, they, they, they want to ask, they want to understand how it works so that then they can take it. In all these cases, what are they doing in every situation? They are trying to possess the power. They're trying to take it, grab it, and utilize it as they see fit. And that's not the way it works. To receive the power of God, you can't, you can't take it. You can only do exactly what I just said. You can receive it. And to receive it, you have to give everything else up in the process, trusting that his power is even better than our feeble notions of our own. Foucault said that power is in discourse, knowledge, regimes of truth. It's in buildings, it's in structures, it's in economies, it's in all these places. It's everywhere, right? And notice, notice, please, that this story is all about rumors and disagreements and debates. Where is it? Where is he? What's going on? They're divided about him. Is it the same guy? It's not the same guy. What's going on? All of this has started because it was centered around the testimony of a blind beggar who said Jesus gave him sight. That's where this whole ruckus began. So when you take a step back, 
and we look at the story. There are three tiers of power. There are the Pharisees, the social elite, the holders of the knowledge, the directors of the conversation, the purveyors of truth. Their response to the claims of Jesus is to denounce him. He can't be God. They don't care about God. They just want to maintain their power. Unfortunately, friends, this might step on your toes. Some of you in this room, you don't really care about God. You just want a nice, feel-good experience to maintain your power in the world. I'm not going to say that again. I think you got me the first time. They don't care about God. They just want to maintain their control. And for many of us in the West, we have the exact same relationship with God. We, we, so, we, like, we tiptoe with him. We like some of what he's giving. But we don't want all of him because to take all of him requires that we have to give up our power. And we are not willing to do that. But then second tier down, there's the townspeople. They're the neighbors. The moderately powerful. The middle class. They consume and regurgitate the conversation. They're open for something new, right? This guy says that he was healed by this Jesus. Okay, I'll try it. They're open because their lives are really hard. So their response to Jesus is, I'll try it. I'll try him out. I'll buy another self-help book. I'll try another diet, another dating site, a new practice. I'll do it. We'll see if it works. Who knows? But God's kingdom did not start with the Pharisees, nor did it start with the townspeople. God's kingdom started in the third tier of power. Those who are the abjectly powerless. A beggar born blind. And not blind because of some sin, like in chapter 5. All his life, all he had ever known, was total and complete emptiness. All he had ever known was total and complete scorn and derision and death. His life had been just dead. He's a beggar, blind. He has no power. None of it. None of it. He's at the absolute bottom. And is there any place as devoid of the power of the world, quite like death. And yet what Jesus is trying to say is that God's kingdom, God's power, is beginning in the dead places. Friends, I don't know what's in your heart and what's in your life and your story, but I do know this, that if you want to encounter a radically new way of life, a radical new love that will utterly change everything about you in the best way possible, such that your friends and your neighbors will be like, who are you? I don't know who you are. In the best way possible, if you want to encounter that God, it's going to be in the dead places of your story. It's going to be in the dead places. And the way that Jesus heals this man is really unique and fascinating. Uh, scholars point out you know, he, he spit on the ground, he takes the mud, he wipes it over his eyes, and then the man goes away. Don't know how he got to the pool of Siloam, but he did. And he goes away and he washes and, and the mud is, is discarded and he can see. This is the only time that Jesus heals with a substance that isn't incorporated into the healing, meaning this. When he changes the miracle of the water to wine, the water becomes wine. It's incorporated into the miracle. When, uh, when he cast out demons, 
He casts them out through his words, through his, through his hands. So there's nothing excess. But in this scenario, the mud is excess. He doesn't use the mud. He, I mean, he uses it, but then it doesn't stay with the man. It's not like the mud is absorbed into his skin. It's washed away. Moreover, when you look at that Verse 6 and 7, where it talks about how Jesus um, uh, put the mud on him and, and he's doing this work. There's odd phrasing. He says this is happening so that God's works might be revealed in him. He's talking a lot about light and darkness, day and night. I am the light of the world. So long as I am in the world, we must do the works of God and making mud. And then it dawns on you as you read this that John and Jesus are trying to draw us back, echo back to the creation accounts of Genesis. And some of the earliest interpreters, Irenaeus being one of them, they saw in this story the creation account, just like when God was doing these works, which is a, a phrase that you don't see throughout the rest of John's gospel. God is making a new work, and he takes the dust from the ground, and he forms it into a human but this is different because this is not a human being made from scratch, from dust. This is a human who is defective. This is a human whose eyes do not see. So Jesus makes the mud and smears it over his eyes. And I imagine, if you'll go with me, I imagine the mud crusting over, maybe like a tomb, like a rock over a tomb, where there's something powerful happening behind, you just can't see it yet until he goes beneath the waters and he comes up and the tomb is rolled away and oh my gosh, he can see. This is not God in creation. This is God making new creation. This is God starting in the defective dead places emerging from the tomb with new eyes that can see. Jesus is foreshadowing here in this healing where his power emanates from. And it starts, guys, in death. When God enters into death behind the tomb and emerges three days later, he will emerge so transformed that people will say about him, it's him. And others will be like, it's not him. That will be exactly what the response is. God's power starts in death, in the places that felt so defective that they were just, they were dead. That's where God enters and says, I will make this live again. I will make this new, which is why the gospel wasn't real for me until as a 16-year-old boy lying in a hospital bed all alone after a major, major surgery. When I felt uglier, more unlovable, I felt more unnecessary to society. It was summertime and I was 16 with nothing to do that summer but heal. I felt at the lowest possible place and there God met me. <laughs> there I encountered the love of God. It got to the dead places in me. Which is why the gospel wasn't real to my brother until he hit rock bottom from a life of hedonism and narcissism and obsession and then God finally was able at that rock bottom place where he was dead.
God was able to say, my boy, my child. And he heard him. Because there was nothing else possessing him in those places. He was finally open to be possessed by God's love. That's the point. In those dead places, you have nothing possessing you. So therefore, you are finally open to be possessed by God's love. Which is why the power of Jesus won't be real for you guys until you make available the dead places in your life and in your heart. And risk that God might want to enter them, make a little mud and say, my child, let it live. Let it live. And this isn't just individually, guys. I just want to, I mean, this is the method of Jesus. This is the method of the new kingdom. But this isn't just an individual thing for you. This is a societal thing. This is how the kingdom spreads. This is how Christianity has spread for the last 2,000 years and how it swept the world. If you look at where the gospel is exploding, like people are becoming Christians by droves, guess where it's happening? In the dead places. There's a documentary that just recently came out called Sheep Among Wolves. You can watch it for free on YouTube. It makes the case that the fastest growing church in the world right now, do you know where it is? Fastest growing church, Iran. In Iran. Yeah. And in this, in the documentary, it points out they have no buildings, no structural power. They have no centralized leadership, no organizational power. And they are almost exclusively led by women. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because the gospel enters the dead places and says, let it live. Be set free. Come alive again. Of course, the fastest growing church would be in a radicalized Islamic country. And, it, and these women say, they, they change their voices. They say that if they're caught the first thing that will happen to them is they will be raped, another form of power. And yet they are so full of hunger for Jesus. It's spreading like wildfire because they're, they're not filled with other ideas of power. They are open to the Spirit of God to meet them where they are. What do they have? Nothing. Fear, persecution, death. And therefore, they're completely open to the power of God meeting them. And when the power of God meets us, when it meets you in your death and in your powerlessness, you know, you know how uh, we really know that the power of God has met us? This will be our response. Verse 24 through 25 and 31. The Pharisees call this man back, the blind beggar who now sees. And they say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't want to understand everything. Here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. All he has, <laughs> all he has is his testimony. Here's what I know. I was 16 in a hospital bed and I felt so alone and God met me and my life has never been the same. That's what I know. That's all I know. That's it. And then going on, he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners meaning Jesus, but he does listen to those who worship him and obey his will. So when the power of God meets us, what is our response? What do we have to offer? We have worship, we have obedience, and we have testimony. Those are the weapons of the church. Those are the weapons 
of those. Those are the response. That's the response of those who have been invaded by the presence of God. How is the church in Iran spreading so fast? Because they have a deep worship of Jesus. They have an obsessiveness to know him, to hear his voice, to listen to it. When he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, they go and they have a testimony that they pass on of how God has met them with a love that is so powerful it almost destroyed them. And Jesus in his own ministry will say that he does only what he sees the Father doing. And he does it for love of the Father. His gospel will spread through our testimony about him and his testimony about God. Guys, from the world's perspective, we have such powerless tools. Worship. We pour out our hearts in hunger for God. That's what we have. Obedience. We don't claim agency over our lives, but in every step of the way, we open up our hands and say, God, what are you saying? I'll do whatever you say. Take it all. Take it all. Take all the money. Take all the work. Take, take everything. I don't want any of it. Just leave me you. Leave me yourself. Leave me your presence. Worship, obedience, and a testimony that says a life that is lived so irresponsibly, potentially. A life that's lived and says, I don't want anything because I've met this Jesus and he's worth, he's worth it all. He's the pearl of great price that when I found, I sold all that I had and I went after him. We have such powerless tools, and yet that has always been how the kingdom has spread across the world. And if you look in the history books of where Christianity takes root, where the gospel takes root, it always starts at the bottom of the social ladder, always. And then it starts percolating the way up. <laughs> it turns the world on its head. God. God, the giver of life, where do we find him? We find him in the dead places. God, the victor. God, the powerful one, where do we find him? We find him in the powerless places. That's the gospel, and that's your invitation. You can have it or not. It's your choice. But if you want it, if you want a chance to encounter, if you want to receive Jesus' love, it'll come in those places, in those seasons, where you feel absolutely dead. So I'm gonna invite the band back up, and this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do all three of those things right now as our response. We're gonna worship. We're gonna sing a song saying, what does it mean to build our lives on the love of Jesus? I encourage you as you sing, wherever you may be spiritually, whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, I encourage you to press into it, to perhaps Pray, give him permission to come close to those dead places. See what he might say in them. I encourage you to let your guard down and let his power enter in. The power will flow if you worship out of your death. But then as we sing, some of you need to obey today. Some of you, there's something in your heart that you know God is saying and you need to say yes to it, whatever it may be. Maybe for some of you, you've been on the fence of a relationship with Jesus for enough time now. You need to jump in. You need to say, I don't know where it's going. I don't know what it will happen, but I say yes, Jesus, to this.
I encourage you to do so. As we pray in a second, I'll, I'll help lead you and you can say a prayer, which again, is just a step in the direction. And as you worship, for others, it may be it's time to get baptized. You know that's been in your heart for a while and now it's like, this is the step you need to take. Take the step, do it. For others, maybe there's something specific to your life, to the dead places in your life that God is saying, you need to, to think about this career situation. You need to think about this relationship situation. You need to think about this area. Go to that place with him. Nothing will happen if you don't. Our tools are worship, obedience, and testimony. And so then the last question for us is, do you have a testimony? Do you have an encounter with Jesus' power that is so strong that people don't recognize you? That is so strong that you can't keep quiet about it? If so, why? And if not, then do you need a fresh resurrection? Do you need a fresh coat of mud so that he can meet you in the dead place and you can hunger and sing again for how good he is? Because friends, he is so Good, and I promise you, as someone who's been stepping more into this over the last little bit of time, I promise you, the more you step into it, the more you get to see the power of God, and it's intoxicating. Oh my gosh, I want that for every one of you. I want you to know, like, I was blind, now I see. I want you to walk in the power of Jesus. It's so good. It's hard, it'll ask everything from you, you won't be in control of your life, but it's so worth it. But I can't make that decision for you. That's between you and God. That's you. What I can give you is my testimony, and I will give that as loud and as often as you need to hear it. I was dead, and now I live. I was blind, and now I see. And I know it came through this man and the power of his name, Jesus Christ. He is the visible image of the visible God. And through him, I have learned to love God, love myself, love this world in a way that I've never been able to. I will spend the rest of my life going after this man. I will spend the rest of my life worshiping him. And I invite all of us in this room to do the same. So let's pray. God, your work starts in the dead places. You go to those seasons of failure. You go to those broken, dead relationships. You go to those narratives that we believe about ourselves. You go to those places, and we're terrified to have you there because we're not sure if we can trust you. It's dead. I mean, can the dead actually live? And yet your promise is that it can, that you are making a new creation. And so God, as we sing this song, my prayer for every person in this room is that they would surrender, they would relent, that they would yield their very beings and their hearts to your invading love, your invasive, empowering love. If there's anyone in this room who has never entered into a relationship with you, even though they're terrified of what that might mean or what that would look like, I would pray that right now that they would address you, Jesus, and simply say, Jesus, I don't know who you are fully. In the same way that this guy said, I don't know if you're a sinner or not. I just know that there's something compelling about you and your story 
and I want to know you better. So would you come, would you dwell within me? I receive your love. If there are people who need to take a step of baptism, Lord, give them the encouragement right now to do so. And for us in this room who you walk with, but we are not walking in your power, would you show us where we're holding on to some other worldly, some other aspect of power in this world that, uh, that because we're holding on too tightly there, we can't receive your love and us and your power. We know you're a good God who longs for your children to know you. And so God, as we sing right now, as we worship, as we obey, and as we testify, would you meet us with your presence? It's in your name. Amen. Would you stand together as a community? Let's respond with this song. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.